You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 23rd, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Cara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. How is everyone doing this week? Good. Hanging in there. See any good boats lately? Eh. Boats. <laughs> That's a great transition. You guys, thank I'm you, obsessed you. with this story. It's all over Twitter. That's where I first saw it. Actually, my friend is named Katie McKissick. And she was like, as a person with a name <laughs> McName, I am not amused. But I'm obsessed with this. So so the the UK basically was like, we want one of our research vessels. We want to crowdsource the name. So they put an open call for people to to name it. And what do you think that happened? That was their first mistake. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So what is, what is the, the name that is leading in the polls, like far and above all the others? Bodie McBoatface. Oh my Bodie god, I love it. Oh, that is so <laughs> terrible. Come on, no, is that even it's funny? So funny. Yeah, Jay. It's it's so kind of is. Yeah. I'm obsessed with this and I know that they're never gonna paint it on the side of that ship. Like Her Majesty's Bodie McBoatface. But I really <laughs> hope that they do. <laughs> they almost have to, I think, at this point, because it's this is like going super viral. It's like all over the place. They've got you know so many entries now, and it's of course it's feeding on itself. And you, the, the server is oh, yeah. like crashing. <laughs> I know. You know, and they don't <laughs> have to use the name because they said it's only a suggestion they're not you right. know, they're not obligated to use it but i think there's going to be a backlash if they don't pick that name what kind of backlash i mean you know ultimately they'll choose a name probably not Bodie mcboatface and then you know people will go on to the next thing but for now it's a lot of fun but if they did pick Bodie mcboatface it would be amazing imagine you get your first prestigious captain ship thing <laughs> captaincy Say, what, what boat did you get? I am Captain Bodie McBoatface. Oh, my God. It's not even the HMS, right? Because the HMS is Her Majesty's ship, but this is a royal research ship. So it's RRS, Bodie McBoatface. And it would be in the same fleet as the RRS James Clark Ross and the RRS Ernest Shackleton. Oh, wow. Right. So a representative said that uh, we would like the name to be inspirational and about environmental mm-hmm. and polar science to help us tell everyone about the amazing work the ship does. Good luck with that. So yeah. Yeah, they gave they gave up on that the moment they crowdsourced it, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, basically. Yeah. They- I don't know, guys. When I hear Bodie McBoatface, I think inspirational science. <laughs> but here's the thing: um, if they were, if they wanted to raise the profile of what they do, then yes. job well done. Go exactly. with it. Who cares what's on the painted on the side of the boat? Yeah, that's I mean, ultimately it. I did not even know they existed, and right. would not know unless it mm-hmm. was for Bodie McBoatface. So come on. Uh, there's a Twitter account now, I understand, Bodie McBoatface. So the ship is tweeting or the... Uh, the po- <laughs> that, that's that's funny. So maybe they put that name on there for a year, you know, and entertain them for a little while and then... Oh, that'd be great. And then they you Actually, know, then they can paint over it when everybody stopped caring. That's a good compromise, Jay. I like that. I love, too, the, the, uh, the quote from the BBC radio guy who actually... He was a presenter, First a former presenter. Yeah, on BBC yeah. radio. And he's the one who, like, suggested Bodie McBoatface. His quote is... I stand by it being a brilliant name. Yeah. Oh my God. Now, of course, what has to happen is they give the ship the name. You know, they just eat eat it and and do that. And then, like, whatever, a year from now, something happens where that particular ship, for whatever reason, is in the news, and every newscaster has to say <laughs> Bodie McBoatface. You know, whatever was involved with what. <laughs> 
Floating my boat face has hit an iceberg. In the yeah, exactly. <laughs> so does that mean they have they have to like paint a picture of a face on that thing? That would be kind of cool. Kara, I think that's... boat face. I'm obsessed. This is like the funniest Silly. thing that's ever happened. I'm so excited about it. This is literally <laughs> the funniest thing that has ever happened. Ever second in the funniest. World. Yeah. Okay. Let's go on to some serious. Serious what? skeptical news oh. items. Actually, uh, Carrie, you're going to start us off with what's the word? Yeah. I am. And this word is, I guess, somewhat serious. It was recommended by, let me just see, Harmon, um, who wrote in to say, hey, maybe you guys should talk about the Equilux, not to be confused with the Equinox, even though it's fully to be confused with the Equinox. Or the Electrolux. Or the Electrolux, exactly. I am not talking about a vacuum cleaner. I'm talking about a day on the calendar. Now, you guys know about the Equinox. It's Latin for equus and nox. You put them yes. together, and it makes equal nox, which is equal night. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> we talk about the Equinox as a specific day on the calendar when basically the um there are these two equinoctical points and it's because of the tilt in the earth's axis so the equator which is how we southern people say it i know it's how do you guys really? say it again equator equator yeah i say equator deal with it do you um i do a lot of people in the south oh, say well. equator <laughs> that's okay weird. that's how you can hey, point that's your out. thing i know it's our thing we say equator and insurance um and umbrella so there's the ecliptic which is what kind of is the plane that all of these celestial objects move around. And then there's also the equator, the equator, um, which is that (laughs) sort of line that we think of around Earth. And what happens is that two days in the year, they actually intersect. So there's the autumnal equinox and there's the um, vernal, which is like the pedantic way to say the spring equinox. And most people think that on the equinoxes that that is when we have equal day and equal night but that's not quite true you will see the sun uh overhead directly overhead at midday on the equinoxes it'll rise exactly out of the east it'll set exactly out of the west and that's a little bit shifted throughout the rest of the year um but the length of the day and the night are not actually equal they're just nearly equal so we actually have another term there called the equal lux and the equal lux is the day in which the length of dark and the length of light are as close to equal as possible and the interesting thing is that the equal lux is different depending on where you live on the planet now i did a little digging mm. and i figured out exactly why on the equinox we can't call it the equal lux and that's because of the shape of the sun and the size of the sun. So it appears as a disc in the sky, and it's got a radius of around 16 arc minutes, because I remember what mm-hmm. that means. <laughs> the top <laughs> of it actually lights up the sky before the very center, which is the point at which we calculate whether or not the sun has risen or set. And so because of that, on the equinox, there's a little bit more sun, maybe about 10 extra minutes of sun than there is dark because the sun is peeking its head up and starting to light up the sky. So you actually have to go to the equilux, and the only way to figure out what your equilux is is to look it up because it's going to be different depending on where you live. Hmm. Interesting, right? Cool, yeah. Never heard of that term. I did not know that, no. Kind of a new way to be, as I said, totally pedantic is to correct people. Yeah. <laughs> when they say that the equinox is equal day and equal night. Almost. Cool. Yep. Yeah, so almost. Kara, an arc minute is one sixtieth 
of a degree of arc. You know, a degree oh. of arc is one three hundred and sixtieth of a circle. Mm-hmm. Then you divide up one minute, uh, degree see. into a minute. It's like a minute of an hour. Second. Yeah. And there's arc seconds as well. And there well. are arc, arc seconds. seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's such a brilliant way to do it because, of course, yeah, I love so it. used to time on a clock. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. That's smart. Okay. Easy cool. to understand. Yeah. So it's um small. <laughs> it's small. Yeah. Right. Small, but it actually lights up the sky on average, 10 minutes longer than the calculations would tell you that it would if you're measuring from the center of the sun over the horizon. All right, Jay, this is this one's really cool. Tell us about this uh, supernova shockwave that scientists have. Shocking. <laughs> this was like unbelievable, right, guys? This is the first time that scientists have ever been able to, um, to like see a supernova, a shockwave, and it comes from an exploding star. And you need to look up this animation on Google. I mean, any star you look at is going to be just really a point of light. They're not going to, they're really not going to see a hell of a lot, especially the detail in that video. I, I think my interpretation was that based on that little signal that was in the bottom right of the video, that diagram of the light output, based on that, they extrapolated what it, what it could look like. So I think it was a cool video, but I mean, I think a it was lot an of animation. Spec- yeah. yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of speculation of what you would exactly really see, you know, if you were, if you were that, you know, if you were close enough to see it, so it's it's a lot of it's a lot of extrapolation and speculation, but it's cool anyway. So NASA's Kepler Space Telescope that was launched on March 9, two thousand seven, captured a supernova, which is a, a magnificently huge star explosion. They captured the explosion of star KSN two zero one one D as oh, it I exploded. Like that star. They were able to capture a shockwave of visible light that came off of the explosion, and that is the first time that's ever happened. The star was close to about 500 times the diameter of our own sun and was about 1.2 billion light years away. And the event, they said it lasted about 20 minutes. Oh, what are the odds of being able to catch a 20-minute instance? Yeah, it was very lucky. So Kepler happened to be looking for an extrasolar or multiple extrasolar planets in the Cygnus constellation, and they caught this un- completely unplanned event. This is a hugely unlikely thing that happens, to, you know, that we could actually capture with a, you know, one of our few telescopes looking in the exact right direction. So we're lucky that Kepler was there and that it was you know, staying focused on the same point in space. And also, um, you know, because of the data that we collected, scientists are now going to be able to figure out how shockwaves are formed from a supernova event, which is good because as we luckily happen to catch more and more supernova, we'll be able to learn more about why they happened and how they happened. So I also found out that um, that there was another event that they were, they did capture and it didn't have a visible shockwave and they're trying to figure out why one did and one didn't. They think now that there may have been um, gases uh, coalescing around the star or somewhere in the area of the star that could have prevented you know, a, a real shockwave from happening. So, so two supernovas were captured, but one, they, they were, the, the devices were able to see the shockwave and one they were not. Right, I don't understanding that correctly. Yes, I'm not sure where the earlier one took place. I'm not. I, I doubt it was in the same patch of sky. Um, but they did catch one earlier. I think years ago. Type, this is a Type Two supernova, and that means that the star core ran out of fuel. You know what's cool is that when a massive that there, there's a massive amount of outward pressure that's created by the uh, nuclear production, and that <laughs> and that counter. <laughs> That you pronounce it better than George Bush. I I'm trying. Yeah, that makes you sound Southern right there. It does. 
<laughs> and that counteracts the star's gravity, right? So you have this outward pressure that's pushing back against the massive gravity of a star. And when those two, ba- when the fuel runs out, the balance is lost, and the actual car uh, star collapses on itself. It collapses in, and gravity just pulls it in super fast, and then it just explodes. Gravity wins. Yeah, yep. it always wins, except when it doesn't. <laughs> so I wonder if they detected any neutrinos because. Because neutrinos are the first things that escape from a supernova. Because uh, not, there's nothing to stop it. They, you know, they go through everything. But at that distance, over a billion light years, I'm sure there wouldn't be too many. I guess there wouldn't be too many neutrinos to detect. I, I don't know, but it'd be interesting to find that out. And one more cool thing to think about: when this happens, there there is material that's created, and we're made up of that material. <laughs> Ooh, it's true. The heavier elements. Yeah, it, yeah. That's what's so cool about it. That, that's the famous star stuff because there's a whole suite of elements that even a massive star can't create, but it takes a supernova to make the heaviest elements. I mean, there could be creatures that are going to live a million years from now that are going to be have some of that material from that exploding star inside them. That's crazy. Yeah, probably a couple, probably hundreds, maybe a hundred million. Yes, hundreds, yeah, hundreds of millions, of millions but yes, a yeah. hundred million years is millions of years. I'm with it you, is. Jack. No, that's right. <laughs> Actually, a billion years is also be, millions. It's also of millions years. of years. Yes. It'll, you could say you could say hundreds of years. Then you could say by that billions. logic, you could, you could just say years. It'll yeah, be millions it's, it's, of hundreds of years, but it'll in be years, lots, lots of decades, lots, lots of millions of years. A crap load. <laughs> Tons Definitely. of picoseconds. <laughs> So, Evan, Dave, we sit a lot when we're recording this podcast. Oh, and, yeah. And that's not do. very healthy for you. So what should we do about it? I don't know. I don't know. I think we should uh, take some advice from the musical band R.E.M., who once crooned these famous lyrics. Stand in the place where you work. Now face west. Hmm. Yep. That's from the song Stand, written and recorded in the year of our Lord, 1989. <laughs> now, who knew that that song would turn out to be a prophecy? Of sorts. For you see, like you said, Steve, sitting is bad for you. And we've all heard this many times. There are plenty of opinions on the subject on the internet and some science thrown in for good measure. But for the sake of brevity, I'll reference just one example over at the Mayo Clinic's website, who have a good article about what are the risks of sitting too much. And the research has linked sitting for long periods of time with a number of health concerns, including obesity and metabolic syndrome, a cluster of conditions that includes increased blood pressure, high blood sugar, excess body fat, especially around the old waistline there, and abnormal cholesterol levels. So too much sitting will also potentially increase your risk of death from cardiovascular disease and cancer. And they do have studies to back it up. Now, uh, some solutions that they offer. Uh, Sit less and move (laughs) is basically what (laughs) it is. Uh, And they say you may start by simply standing rather than sitting whenever you have the chance or think about ways to walk while you work. And among the examples they give, they say if you work at a desk for long periods of time, try a standing desk or improvise with a high table or counter. So even these online sources, such as the Mayo Clinic, are informing people that there's a benefit to standing while working as compared to sitting while working. Well, that brings us to this week's latest news to hit the stands. Huh? According to a recent yeah. analysis analysis of 20 of the best studies done so far, there appears to be little evidence that workplace interventions like the sit-stand desk or even those pedaling or treadmill desks that we've read about – They may help you burn some calories, but overall, you're not going to see health benefits from it, and it's not going to reverse 
the effects of the damage that's been done while you've been sitting for so long. So this analysis was published in the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews. Uh, one of the lead authors, Dr. Jos Verbeek, a health researcher at the Finnish Institute of Occupational Health, was quoted as saying, What we actually found is that most of it is very much just fashionable and not proven good for your health. He said the studies that they analyzed came to conflicting conclusions about whether sit-stand desks reduce actual sitting time. Yeah, that's the key. That's inclusive. I do want to emphasize a couple of things, Evan. One is that they're not saying it doesn't work. They're saying that we don't have evidence to prove that it does work. The quality of the studies are not very good. So that's a big Mm -hmm. problem. So it's kind of like flossing. Well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And the other, the other thing is, is that it's not that standing isn't better than sitting. It's more that the interventions that were employed to get people to stand don't work. People are still sitting. Yeah, right. it's, it didn't change the sitting time. So that just to That's be clear, right. it's not that standing doesn't work. It's that, that putting a treadmill under one's desk or giving them a sitting standing desk didn't make them stand more or walk more. They're still sitting basically for the similar amount of time in a lot of similar these studies. Amount of time. So the interventions are not effective. Doesn't mean that physiologically standing is it better than sitting because the evidence suggests that it is. It's so odd then. I feel like there must be a big range because like you were – I heard Jay in the background. You have a coworker with him. My my boyfriend has yeah. a standing desk, but you can't sit at it. It's not a sitting standing desk. It's only a standing desk. And he stands all day at work and he eats food. Like he eats his lunch standing at his desk. I can't it even imagine that. I, I, I can't either. Can't I can't. It that. sounds horrible. But it would blow my mind that if he were in one of these studies, that it would be like, oh, you still sit the same amount. Because he doesn't. Like, he stands all day. Well, no, there are, there are kinds that you could lift up and make it a standing desk or you yeah. spin this little wheel. Sure. And, it goes and so up. most people are kind of lazy and that's they're like, the oh, I think I'll now. just sit right now. <laughs> yeah. I know. That's what's funny is my coworker got one. I, I think she had like a back issue. So she got one and then she used it for about a month. And then now it's just, you know, it's just decoration. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't have a desk chair. Steve, as you said, the, the studies were, were not good. Um, <laughs> studies were too small to be significant or poorly designed. That's outright bad bad designs of the studies. Right. From what other research I did do online, there, there does seem to be, I don't know if it's a consensus or not, but the suggestion is that you should take breaks from sitting. Every, say, 30 or 40 minutes, you should get up for at least a couple of minutes and walk around a bit, which is something I am aware of when I'm at work. I, I do sit quite often, as many other people do, as we, such as our, our, our work culture has, has evolved. And I, I find that it helps remarkably. Um, I'm all, you know, in lots of different, in lots of different ways. Uh, so I, I'm very conscious about taking breaks from sitting for too long. The other thing I want to emphasize about the, the research, uh, is that a lot of the studies showed that just counseling people to move more during the day was just as effective as counseling them and also like putting the treadmill under their desk or the getting the sit stand desk. So all of the benefits, you know, again, these are the, they made the point these are not great studies or too small. We need to do more research. But what we're seeing so far is that the most important thing appears to be just making people aware that prolonged sitting is not good for you and that they need to incorporate into their day physical activity. You know, get up and walk around when you have the opportunity. That seems to be the the most important thing. So how often and how much? As often as you can. Yeah. So remember is when that- we were – do you guys remember when we were at Google and – 
because you yes. know it's, no. a com- it's a computer company <laughs> and people sit in front of their computer all day that they had you know like basketball courts and stuff they had lots of mm-hmm. facilities for their wa- workers to 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 get exercised to play sports so they encouraged them to just like whenever you want take a break from your work go out and play basketball whatever and that was great you know that's really really important so i think Part of it may also be that the culture has to change. Like, for example, yeah. I have patients scheduled all day. I, on If every one of my patients shows up, for example, like my typical day is I'm seeing patients basically with only a break for lunch, and that could be like a half an hour. And when I'm seeing patients, I, 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 do get, I get up and down a couple of times, but most of that time is spent sitting hmm. uh, hmm. with the patient. There's just that's just the way my day is structured. I really don't have a lot of leeway there, you know. But that's just because that's just the way it's done. Uh, I think probably a lot of people are in the same situation where their the demands of work require them to sit for long yeah. periods of time, and yeah. the the culture of whatever of the of of the company or of the of professions or whatever d- doesn't incorporate this really putting a high priority on having multiple opportunities throughout the day to get up and walk around. And you also lose time when you're really into your job. Like when you're actually working and you're really focused, you don't realize sometimes that you've been sitting there for two, three hours straight. Sure. So I think that's Set a timer. Why, yeah. A lot of people are actually wearing fitness trackers now, like Fitbits and things like that. And a lot of them have a setting, basically like a motivation setting where it'll go off or it'll remind right. you if you haven't moved in a certain amount of time, which is probably pretty helpful. Yeah. And awesome. yeah so- pretty good. Software can assist us with that. Yeah. Certainly. Yes. Sure. Do you guys ever do this? Sometimes if I, if I have a long drive, you know, I drive two or three hours, I'll get to my destination and I'm like, I got to sit down. It's like, wait, (laughs) wait, I don't understand this. Why do I feel like sitting down when I've just been sitting down for three hours? It's like, this can't be right. We get off of airplanes too. Like, do you notice when you first land, you have this like instinct to stand up because you've been sitting the whole time. So you stand up in the aisle, mm-hmm. but if it takes people a long time to get out of the plane, you're like, ugh, and you sit back down. <laughs> this is exhausting <laughs> standing. I need a break. <laughs> it's so pathetic. <laughs> We're so lazy. Our, b- Bob, tell us how the Earth's magnetic field saves our life. Guys, check this out. A young and dangerous sun-like star is showing astronomers that a planetary magnetosphere is even more critical than we thought to give a planet any hope of creating life as we know it. Now, we, we've known for quite some time that, of course, our, our magnetic force field around the Earth is important, but this is an interesting angle. These findings are due to the study of a star with a very cool name called Kappa Ceti. Uh, this is 30 light years uh, away, which is very close, and it's very much like our, our own sun, except it's like the sun when it was an adolescent, only 400 to 600 million years old, fairly Aww. young. So uh, a young preschool age son doesn't mean it's tiny and cute and picks its nose. It's more <laughs> like a Tasmanian devil from Looney Tunes after drinking a case of Red Bull. <laughs> now, Capacetti is violent and, and dangerous. I think I said that. It, it has in, an incredibly high magnetic activity. Uh, its insides are just are so twisted that she, these huge clusters of star spots are created on its surface. Yikes. Its solar wind is 50 times stronger than our sun's, making it like a plasma typhoon that expands throughout the solar system. That's, that's pretty potent. Um, and it's also believed that Kappa SETI releases what's called super flares. That essentially, they make our sun's flares seem like tiny Roman candles. 
uh, such a flare could release, get this, 10 to 100 million times the energy, the biggest flares that we've seen. I mean, these these are immense. So I tried to put trying to put that damage into perspective and it's actually I couldn't find any hard and fast numbers. Uh so I'll compare it to say uh the Carrington event from 1859 which is the largest flare that that we know of that has hit the earth and uh luckily we were at a very primitive state of electronic development at that time. So re- oh, the only thing it really did is cause failures in the telegraph systems that uh, existed at that time in Europe and North America. But if that, if a Carrington level event happened again, it would cause they've calculated about two trillion dollars of damage, and uh, that's that's been equated to twenty Hurricane Katrinas. But but you know that doesn't really really give you an idea of what would happen. I mean, we could essentially we could lose all of our satellites, or at least damage most of them or all of them. Uh, our ozone layer would could experience. Um, significant depletion it, to recover from something like this could take months to to years electricity distribution could fail just just fail even even the uh the, the fuel rods that are cooled at nuclear power stations they won't have power and they they could fail they we could, we could have meltdowns radio communications could be screwed up for quite a long time so this is just a carrington level event so these super flares uh could have really pummeled the hell out of the earth the interesting angle to this though is that capacetti at 300 to or 400 to 600 million years old that's how old our sun was when life was just getting started on the earth so if the researcher's premise is correct and our sun was like capacetti back then then the earth really took a beating from the solar wind and super cmes coronal mass ejections so uh so life never would have arisen um if if we did not have a, a magnetosphere uh, you can't say that why didn't why wouldn't have just arisen a billion years later the thing is steve what the, the point that they're coming from is that if you don't have a mag, mag, if the earth did not have a magnetosphere then life never would have arisen and even and it never would have arisen after that because what would happen was that these super flares and super cmes what they would do is they would decimate our atmosphere and any and any water that's on the surface and once that's gone you become mars and you will not have life ever ever life as life as we know it uh, yes oh. life as we know it of course so so now mars mars had a magnetosphere early on and that's why uh it didn't become like modern mars back then but um, it, it slowly lost its magnetosphere over, over the years. And, uh, because that magnetosphere was gone, the sun, you know, the sun, the mature sun that's, that's nicer and kinder of today still, uh, still over right? many millions of years decimated or worse than decimated, uh, totally stripped the atmosphere because of the interaction of the solar radiation and the atmosphere. And then, of course, with no, you know, the, the water does, is not going to last very long on a planet with no atmosphere. So that, that went away. So that's, so right, that's Bob, the let point. Me, let me bring up one other point. Okay. What if, because Mars is also smaller than the Earth right. and its crust completely hardened and it basically doesn't have any volcanic activity anymore either so there was nothing replenishing the atmosphere what if you had a planet bigger than the earth that had that was very geologically active and even if it didn't have a magnetosphere the volcanic activity was replenishing the atmosphere at the same rate you know basically at a steady state um to whatever was being stripped away by the solar wind so you could theoretically have a planet with a with a stable atmosphere even without a magnetosphere, is that possible? Yeah, I, I think that it would be possible, but of course, it would be life that would be very different th- than what we have on the Earth because they would have to adapt to 
uh, to an environment that was pretty damn harsh. Uh, yeah. You know, you, with no ozone layer, uh, you'd have you'd have to be very, very, very hardy to to survive to survive that that lethal radiation. I mean, come on, it would be nasty. I mean, perhaps you'd have mostly deep ocean life that would be somewhat protected. But sure, if that if it could be replenished, if you could replenish your your atmosphere at enough at a at a good enough rate, then sure, then that it sounds plausible to me. But I'm not sure how yeah. how how possible that is. Don't think though that these super these super flares are gone for good because they I, some of the research I did led me to believe that it's still possible. Some scientists think that a super flare can you know there can be like a one off super flare that happens perhaps once in in ten thousand years, and they've actually spotted super flares on stars on older stars. And one scientist, uh, Chloe Pugh, said uh, that occasionally solar flares contain multiple waves super imposed on top of one another so you could have kind of like a perfect storm scenario where these where these solar flares get together to to create a super flare and if that hit the earth uh i, I don't think it would necessarily be the super duper flare of kappa seti in terms of 10 to 100 million times as powerful but even if it was say a super flare that was merely a million times more p- p- powerful than a than a carrington level event i mean that would be as you could imagine utterly devastating but like I said, that's rare. Maybe once in you know one in ten thousand years. I'm not. I'm not even aware of any evidence uh, for a, a, a super super flare hitting the Earth in the past. Because if that were true, it certainly would have happened many times in in our past. Um, so that's actually interesting because because apparently life would be able to to survive that. But the thing I think I think the takeaway here is though that we need to prepare not necessarily for a super flare but a Carrington level event uh, because it's basically going to happen. The latest odds I've, yeah. I've read say that it's going to the chances of it happening are one in eight every decade. You know, say 12%, we had one miss us twelve percent. We had yes, we had grazed our Close temples. Call. It was uh, that was so scary. So I I really hope. Hope, you know, we start taking this more seriously and we start doing some doomsday prepping for, uh, you know, when, for when the day comes, when we see, you know, 20 Katrina's essentially heading our way. Because uh, that, that's scary to me. That's, you know, a lot of these things, these supernovas, uh, gamma ray bursts. Yeah, those are nasty and devastating, but it's probably not going to happen in our, in our lifetimes. This could happen. This could certainly happen. It's I I'm you know I think it's similar to an asteroid or a comet hitting the Earth. Uh, it's going to happen. It's only a matter of time. Could be tomorrow. Could be could be fifty years. But it's something that's not in the distant distant future. And these uh, these fl- these you know major flares, not super flares necessarily, but major flares like the Carrington event. Man, it's going to happen. Twelve guys, twelve percent a decade. I mean, that's one in eight. So wait, how do we prepare? Like, what is there anything we can do personally? Yeah, You're yeah, freaking me out, Bob. We sure, have to harden our infrastructure against yes. induced current like that. Like, how do I personally prepare instead of just hoping that, like, the people who have the power to do something about the infrastructure? It's the happen. royal we, Kara. It's, it's put, yeah. Yeah. Our, our society has to talk about it. it. Maybe somebody will listen to this podcast that will... Uh, Take some power. become a, become an act become an activist. Other things we could do. How about how about creating uh, backup transformers? Um, yeah. You know, if, if all of our transformers blew, that's the kind of thing that could take years to replace because those are e- those are not easy to make. The resources you need to make them are all over the place. 
Um, we, we should have backups that are shielded and ready to, ready to pop in, you know, after an event like that. Otherwise, we're talking about, can you imagine a blackout that lasts for eight months or two years? Oh just just think about that. That's, Society that's scary will as shit. Well before that. Like, there's this new movement to have personal batteries, right? Like, they're kind uh-huh. of expensive, but it's a, it's a large enough battery that you charge with your own solar panels that can provide power to your house so that you can get off the grid. It, it's like a lot of good energy independence. Would those be susceptible? I, susceptible. Be vulnerable. Yeah, I'm, vulnerable. My take is I'm not sure. I haven't researched that specific mm-hmm. specifically in a while. My take is that small scale electronics are probably kind of safe. It's it's the large scale grids um, that uh, yeah. that that would get that where you can induce a lot of current that will get fried. I think the small scale stuff. Uh, is probably a little bit safer. So, uh, but the scale of a house, may, maybe some sort of current could be induced, but I think it'd be maybe. a little bit safer. And it'd be, and something you could shield potentially yourself, hopefully. And it's I mean, cool. You, I mean, there's this yeah. new movement, and you can find these wonderful, um, you know, if you just search online, you can find these companies that are starting to do it, and they'll even help you look at your local municipality to see if there are any uh, rebates or anything that you can get for helping kind of take some of the stress off of the grid. And yeah, a lot of times your electric company, your city, or even your state will pay you to do this. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've been thinking about it lately. seems like a cool thing to do. Yeah. And also early warning is obviously important. Uh, Mm -hmm. We can give us, you can give ourselves many hours or days of notice that something is heading our way. And you can shut down satellites. We've done it before to, to, to save them. People that are in the uh, the space station could go into a shielded area. Although if it's a if it's a super duper flare, uh, there might not be much uh, that, that they can do. You may even need to land planes because if it's a if it's a really big flare and we get hit, I mean, you could actually get fried in a plane. I mean, not literally fried, but you can get you can get severely damaged at being at Oof. such a high altitude for sure. Ah. Yeah, you're freaking me out, Bob. You're freaking me out. Does lead my job? It's my job. <laughs> Does lead protect against these? Uh, what about colander Superman? hats? Yeah, if we all just wear colander, colander hats. hats. Yeah. yeah, would that help? Yeah, so a Faraday good. cage. A Faraday cage would help. That would do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So mu everyone metal. needs around their house their own yeah. personal Faraday cage. Faraday cage or mu metal, but then you wouldn't get any cell phone reception ever. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so. Some days that's all right. Bob, is it true if I don't bathe that that helps too? <laughs> uh, yes, Jay. Keep doing it. Keep not bathing. Yes, please. <laughs> All right, everyone, let's take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Well, guys, we've said it before. We'll say it again. We are huge fans of The Great Courses, and we're really excited about their new video learning service. It's called The Great Courses Plus. And with this new service, you get unlimited access to a huge library of The Great Courses lecture series on a whole bunch of different subjects. There's science, which, you know, we're a little bit biased towards, but there's also history, photography, all sorts of other interest areas. Steve created something called Your Deceptive Mind. This is Steve's, essentially his crash course on skepticism. Steve talks about how your brain works, right, Steve? Neuroscience, baby, memory, perception, cognitive biases, uh, what's your favorite thing for lunch? It's all in there. This is fantastic stuff. I'm serious. I, I, I've watched the course twice, and uh, Steve has pretty much taught me everything I know about skepticism. With the Great Courses Plus, you can watch all these different lecture series Anytime you want, wherever you want. It doesn't matter. You can be connected to your television, to your PC, through your tablet, through your phone. You can stream it from any internet source. 
through the Great Courses Plus apps. So go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, everyone, let's get back to our show. All right, Kara, you're going to tell us about another medical item, this one having to do with the, the alleged protective effect of drinking alcohol. Yes. So new study published in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs. It was actually just published yesterday as of this recording um, online, March 22nd, 2016. And it is a study involving researchers from Boston and Australia and San Francisco and uh, British Columbia and Canada. A lot of people involved in this. And what they wanted to do is a big meta-analysis. We've talked about meta-analyses before on the show. And try their best to answer the age-old question, do moderate drinkers have a reduced mortality risk? So we've all heard these studies that show if you drink a glass of wine a night, it can actually improve your cardiovascular outcomes. If you drink, you know, just a little, but not too much, it's actually better for you than not drinking at all. And I think that that's one of those news articles that we very commonly will read and go, I love anything I read that just reaffirms the behavior I already have. 10% of my brain agrees. Exactly. Whereas when I read this, of course, my personal biases were like, yes, I knew they were wrong all along. And the fact that I don't drink is better. That's right. But let's Justifi- start to break down. Justifies your antisocial behavior. Go ahead. Exactly. <laughs> and I love that you said that, too, because honestly, that is a big part of why I don't drink. So it really comes down to a big question that the researchers were asking How were these studies done, these hundreds of studies that exist in the literature, many of which actually support the assertion that if you drink some, it's better than not drinking at all? How did they qualify who is a non-drinker and who is a moderate drinker? And what did, you know, as you start to tease away all of the details of these hundreds of studies, what do we come up with? So ultimately, they looked at a systematic review of a population across all these studies this is the, the N value. This is the number of actual participants across all these studies. 3,998,626 individuals. This is a lot of data. And uh, of that group, 367,103 deaths were recorded. And what they decided to do is go through and throw out any study that they didn't find met certain standards. And after they threw out all of those studies, they were still left with something like 87 studies that they decided to do the meta-analysis on. And then they started to tease out a lot of basic, I guess, what would you call it, um, demographic data to fully understand who were these study participants and how were they researched. Because again, we're going back to what they call a J-shaped curve. So imagine a J. A lot of times when we look at relationships, we see different styles of curves. Sometimes we'll see a linear relationship where less is more health, more is worse health or vice versa. Um, a J-shaped curve, just like it sounds, shows that there is some, I guess, um, risk to health if you don't drink at all, less risk to health if you drink a little bit, and then way more risk to health if you drink a lot. That's what that J would define. And the interesting thing is, as they look through these 87 studies, they found over and over that that was the result. The literature is there, and even when they reanalyze the data, they found the same outcome. And so they started wondering, 
Why is that? Is it because there is a true protective mechanism to drinking a glass of wine with your dinner every night? Or is it because the way that we're defining what a moderate drinker is versus somebody who abstains is not very clear. And the more that they started to dig into the histories of the subjects, they started realizing that the people in the abstinence group were oftentimes people who used to have a history of drinking, who now choose to abstain because either they're in a program or because they have really ill health effects because of that. They also found that a common reason that people call themselves um, abstinent, that say they don't drink at all, is because they're already suffering from some sort of ill health effect in which drinking would exacerbate their illness. So there's already um, a confound there that would contribute to increased mortality. And they realized that when they adjusted for individuals in the abstinence group who either had never had alcohol or who had had a very limited history of alcohol consumption. So they threw out all of these people that had a history that were in a program or that were very, very sick otherwise with some sort of like comorbid thing that all of a sudden that relationship became linear and the J curve went away. So now the question that we're asking is, is moderate alcohol better for your health? Or is it just that in the past, all of the studies that looked at people who abstained from alcohol were including people who are already at a higher risk for mortality? It's pretty interesting. It's a whole new way to look at the data. And of course, reinforces what I thought all along, which is no alcohol is better for you than some alcohol. It never made sense to me that a little <laughs> bit of alcohol could help you. I didn't really understand why. Well, I think... A lot of people claimed it was the resveratrol thing, right? But the resveratrol thing drives me crazy because it is a hallmark of these singularity-obsessed Kurzweilian people who think that there are certain compounds that you eat or drink that in high enough doses will help you have increased longevity. It's, it's again that thing that we talked yeah. about last week with if you see something happening in a mouse or you see something happening in a Petri dish, you can't really apply it to the whole human organism. And I see it all the time. I have friends like this who are like, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to download my consciousness. I eat really clean. I, I take resveratrol every day. And I'm, you know, it's going to make me live a really long life. And I'm like, first of all, I doubt it. And second of all, why would you want to live forever? I guess that's a whole other can of worms. Oh, we got it. <laughs> Come on. Here we go. Like, that sounds terrible. But, yeah, and I, I, I've read that actually for a number of years when the first studies started coming out where they really tried to control for the never, the currently not drinking group, right? Because mm -hmm. it does contain X drinkers or people who Heavy are not. Heavy X drinkers. Yeah, or yes. people who are not drinking for health reasons. And when you control for that, the protect, the alleged protective effect goes away. One, I think, uh, important lesson here is to be very skeptical of observational studies. Mm -hmm. Um, when you do this kind of studies where you're just looking for correlations, it's hard to interpret them because you're, it's not an experimental study, right? You're not controlling for variables. You're just controlling for the ones you could think of. And if there's one variable you're not thinking of, it could completely alter the results of the, of your yep. data. And this is a great example of that where it's like, oh, we, you know, how we defined the not drinking group. It's the same thing with weight. There's this other J curve for weight where people who are, uh, at an a quote unquote ideal weight seem to be less healthy than people who are a little overweight. 
And mm, it's the weird. same exact thing. Is that a protective effect of being a little overweight? Some people speculate that when you get sick, it's good to have a little buffer uh, or when you get older or whatever. But it also could be that people who are in the ideal weight category, some of that may be contaminated by people who are thin because they're sick. Yeah, and that's if, true. unless you uh-huh. control for that, unless you control for that, it's hard to know if there's a protective effect of being a little overweight or if it's just that they, you're, they don't contain as many people who are thin because they're sick. Uh, so it's hard. Observational yeah. studies are hard. There's so many potential confounding factors and you can only control for the ones that you can think of. Whereas when you do an experimental study, you can isolate the variable. You know, you can't isolate the variables with observational studies. And it's important that you mention that because there's actually a quote in the life science article that I read that linked me out to the article in, um, in the literature, the actual scientific study of one of the authors. And he said, one of the biggest limitations in this area of research is that there have been no randomized gold standard type of studies, the kind that we would use to evaluate a new pharmaceutical product, for example. Like, Alcohol has been around for so long and it's not, there's never been an instance, you know, where individuals are trying to figure out, should we legalize alcohol? Should alcohol be able to be prescribed? There's been, I guess, no reason. And it's been very difficult to be able to devise a study where you really do give somebody, you know, oduls for 10 years versus alcohol and then compare the difference. It's not, it just hasn't happened. So the only thing that we have to work with are these core relational um, mortality studies. Yeah, and I'm not saying that you can't get good data from that, but you have to triangulate multiple different mm-hmm. studies. And it could take decades. And decades. that's what these researchers really tried to do. You know, that's I yeah. think it's a, it's an interesting attempt because they said there's a ton of literature out there, hundreds and hundreds of studies. Like I said, almost, what was that, 4 million study participants? That's, a, that's an end value that's very high. And they yeah. were like, let's actually look at the data. Instead of just grouping all of this stuff together and looking at the overall outcomes, let's dive into the data and say, who are these people? What are their backgrounds? What demographic data do we do have that. on them? Yeah. yeah. If that, we don't yeah. have enough, Throw the study out. If it That's looks right. like there are confounds there and we can't, we can't figure out, you know, get to the root of it, throw the study out. What are we left with and what does the data actually show us? So not saying that this is the gold standard, but it's one step closer, I think, to better understanding this question. And it does kind of reinforce reason <laughs> and skepticism. It does. It makes sense. It you makes know, sense. And nobody's really yeah. been able to say beyond a shadow of a doubt why drinking somewhat would be more protective than not drinking. Um, okay, let's move on. Jay, get us up to date on Who's That Noisy? Last week, I played this sound. Uh, I think you guys know what that is at this point, right? Yeah, I guessed yes, it. Sir. I mean, with the hint, with the hint, I guessed that it was the motorbikes, the light bikes from Tron. Tron. That's right. The the 1980s Tron. Oh yeah. yes, of course, the good one. Uh, yeah, man, <laughs> I got I got <laughs> yes, slammed with emails. So uh, many people recognize that sound, uh, and and there was a lot of fun stuff in there. I have to say, like, it, it is really fun when people have the guess because they're excited when they write the email. I think they're writing it right when they hear the podcast, and I'm getting like <laughs> all these like, oh, I can't believe I finally knew one, and they, you know, then sometimes people will give me some context. Like, you know, I remember when I first saw the movie or whatever. It was really fun this week. Has anyone seen that that movie recently? 
Yes, tr- uh, I've actually never seen. Does it hold original up? Original Tron. Yeah, does it hold up, Jay, or no? Oh my gosh, it holds up. It's a little slower than you remember. You know, the, the pacing is a little slow, but it's like, really cool yeah. because now it has an uber retro feel to it. Yeah, the design. It, it's still cool. It's, it's it was fun. I, I was still into it. They should redo the special effects. So many people guessed. Only one person sure. won. Andrew from Calgary. Uh, thank you for writing in. He says, Calgary. it sounds like the light cycles from the Tron movie. Very good. Um, I gave it to him from the Tron movie, but I, I was looking for more specifics about which one because that was definitely the uh, the 80s movie and not the, the remakes, which I didn't like. Anyway. Uncanny Valley. Uncanny Valley. Yeah. Did not like it. Yeah. Uh, the worst guess was, is that a dentist drill? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that is not. A dentist drill from Tron? Yeah. <laughs> no. It'd be funny to have a video of a dentist drilling with that sound effect superimposed on it. <laughs> oh, it's like, did you guys ever used to watch all of those Shreds music videos on YouTube? Remember Shreds? No? It would be like, I don't know, uh, Black Sabbath Shreds or so-and-so Shreds. And so these people will like painstakingly overdub a music video of these incredible musicians with just terrible finger plucking and just really bad, like off key sounds. And it's hilarious. (laughs) It's so good because they overdub them perfectly. It all matches up with their hand movements, but it just makes them look like they have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) That's fine. It's really good. All right, Jay, what do you got for this week? All right, guys, what is this? So if you have an interesting noisy that you heard this week, or if you want to guess, write to me at WTN at TheSkepticsGuide.org. And if you want to complain to Evan, write to us at what WTF at TheSkepticsGuide.org. <laughs> That's right. Yes. I will guarantee you'll get a response from me. Guarantee. All right. Well, we have one question this week. Actually, a number of people emailed us about shouting fire in a crowded theater. And there's, as always, there's an interesting story behind this. So when we had our discussion about free speech, we did mention that as like the iconic example of speech, which is not protected because it endangers people specifically. And that is not literally true. There's actually an interesting story there. But I do think that it's complicated as an example, but let me give you the background. So this is like, and it's iconic to say, oh, well, you know, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. You know, the assumption there is in the original quote is falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. Obviously, if there is a fire, that's fine. You know, you're uh-huh. just warning people that there's actually a fire. This get, this goes back to Oliver Wendell Holmes, a Supreme Court justice in a 1919 case, Schenck versus United States. He said this – it was an incidental statement. It had nothing to do with the case itself. Holmes basically said that you know, falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater is not protected. But now the, the case, by the way, the Schenck, Schenck versus the U.S. case, Schenck was a socialist who was protesting drafting soldiers for World War I. He was not inciting to violence or even civil disobedience. It was just a political opinion about – you know, the, the fact, his opinion that uh, the draft was not a good idea. Uh, and the government arrested him and put him on trial for uh, endangering the welfare of the United States. And he was actually convicted of that and, and went to jail. And uh, Holmes was 
writing for the uh, majority of the because the Supreme Court upheld the conviction. Uh, this was under the Espionage Act. So by modern standards, this was a horrible decision that quite clearly violates free speech. This was the Espionage Act was used to in uh, several cases to silence what were clearly, you know, political, you know, personal political opinions. And the government shut them down, claiming that criticism of the government. Uh, and so the the uh, what the, the standard that was established by the Schenck versus United States case was that speech that represents a clear and present danger is not protected under the First Amendment. So that was the standard until it was overturned uh, in 1969. Uh, but even Holmes at the time, Oliver Wendell Holmes, soon after that decision, he changed his mind and he came to regret that decision and and really regret that quote. You know, that was like one of the most famous – one of his most famous quotes and he detested that that was the case. He said he also says that it was actually misinterpreted. He was saying that, you know, in times of war, we have to suspend the usual protections and then it became interpreted as those protections don't exist. So it didn't really even intend it that way. Uh, but in any case, um, in a 1969 case – the Supreme Court overturned that standard. This is the Brandenburg versus Ohio. So that this is this is you know some people might think this is going too far in the other direction, but this is now the decision. The court held that even speech advocating violence by members of the Ku Klux Klan is protected under the First Amendment. So that effectively replaced the clear and present danger standard with an imminent lawless action standard. That decision, which is still the, the case now, still the uh, the standard that is, that is the law, uh, is that speech is protected unless you are in, immediately inciting people to commit acts which are in and of themselves against the law. It can't just be that it is putting them – at risk for something bad happening, right? So falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater would not meet that standard because there's nothing inherently lawless about the riot that would ensue or the panic, I should say. So inciting people to just some general mayhem, uh, yeah, mayhem is <laughs> is is protected to to general violence, even to violence against groups. Apparently, that's all protected speech. It only crosses over the line. If you say murder I, him, I, yeah, I want yeah, murder him. I want you to right now commit this act, which in and of itself is against the law. Damn. Well, yeah, now you're you're part of a crime now with that speech. So there's other you know there's other obviously limitations on free speech, like any speech which is part of like if you're having a conversation in which you're coordinating conspiracy to commit a crime, that's not protected speech, you know. That speech oh. committed in the process of, a, of a furthering yeah. the plans for hey, a, Jay. criminal activity. Jay, forget oh. that thing I told you earlier, okay? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, but here's the here's the thing. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a, that that's the standard now. Uh, so, I do think that most of the time when I've heard people invoke the well, you know, you can't cry fire in a crowded theater. There, I don't think that they're trying to make the case that that's the actual legal line. I think they're just trying to say that there are exceptions to free speech. You know what I mean? They're just trying to say, oh, well, not all speech is protected. You could, there's a line that you can cross where the, this, this speech is 
something bad is happening as a consequence of that. I don't think people are saying that, you know, legally, this is exactly where the line is. Um, it's unfortunate that that's become the iconic example because it's not literally true. That that's not where the line is. And uh, the line is the now the um, imminent lawless act standard, not the mm. clear and present danger standard. And it's important to know that. But I, again, I don't think people are are like making a legal argument at, to, at that level of detail. I think that they're just trying to say, well, sure, there's free speech, but you shouldn't do that. You know, you shouldn't use speech in a, in a reckless way like this. Right. You know right. What I mean? More of a colloquialism. Yeah. Than yeah, yeah. Interpretation. I also think of that a lot matters. of people. You know, as we said, looking back on that first Supreme Court decision, it was like by today's standards, like a crazy decision. Yeah. I think that this is just a better gold standard for people to say, like, if I were to draw my line in the sand, a lot of people would agree that that's where it is. And it's not with the Patriot Act. And it's not with some of the new standards of imminent danger kind of surrounding hyper paranoia around terrorism and things like that. A lot of people don't really agree or some people, I should say, depending on where you are in the political spectrum, yeah. may or may not agree with the more recent standard, but with what we think of as a more historical standard, which, as you clarified for us, is actually the opposite. Hmm. Um, most people agree. Let's maybe not incite some sort of mass trampling. Yeah, that's event. a good point. I think that some people may not even be making a legal argument, but are rather making a moral argument. They're not exactly. saying that this is against the law. They're just saying it's not right. You mm -hmm. know, it's pretty reckless. If you knowingly falsely shout fire in a crowded public space because you're trying to incite a panic, that that's just a dick move, right? You're just an <laughs> yeah. asshole. It may not be technically illegal, uh, but damn, you know, uh, and even, you know, I, I was reading a lot of, you know, background to this. There's this one website, it's an organization that is a First Amendment organization. They're, it's like freespeech.org. Right? Their whole existence is to promote free speech. And even they said when discussing this issue, it's like, yeah, so it's not strictly illegal. The government can't imprison you for doing that but that doesn't mean that the theater can't kick you out for doing that yeah. oh sure that's doesn't right. mean yeah. yeah so it doesn't mean that it's a good idea or that you know even let's say you got up in front of a theater this is their example just to make this point you got up in front of a theater during the middle of a movie and calmly started espousing your political opinions you don't have a right oh. to do that the theater is, it has every right to kick you out because you're mm -hmm. disrupting their movie and that is and not, it's not sue, a but, public place. It's right, a private yeah. place. It's not a violation oh, okay. of your free speech. It doesn't mean that you can yeah. be disruptive, that you can invade other spaces or whatever. But uh, if you do that on a public square and somebody does try to to remove you or try to arrest you, you absolutely sure. have a right. Right. Oh, or sure. if the government is trying to silence your criticism of the government, which is obviously what this is mainly about, right? Yeah. That's mm. that's where the Supreme Court is giving a lot of leeway to the private citizen, which I totally agree with. I agree. It is interesting, though. It's not that different, right? So so technically, it's legal to yell fire in a crowded theater, although it's a dick move. But I yeah. don't think it's legal. You tell me if I'm wrong to say bomb, to yell bomb in, a, in, an, airport. in an airport. Or hijack. or Because now all of a sudden, we're dealing with that not imminent danger but the um or no we're dealing with the imminent danger and like the conspiracy and the no, I mean, I think terroristic you would have 
uh, you would have a, a First Amendment case to say, hey, I've, that's my free speech. The, you might, but like your life would be hell leading up to that court trial. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, but <laughs> like, the theory, I don't recommend but, it. So the, the question then becomes is does the airport – does that give the airport probable cause to put you in a room and, and do a cavity search? Yeah, that's, probably. That's, yeah, then <laughs> that's a different – that's different. I think that they would say, yeah, that's probable cause. You know, But Homeland Security might actually be able to detain you. Like and Homeland Security is a, a federal police force, no? But I don't think they could jail you for that. Hmm, they, interesting. That, I bet you they put you in jail. You'd miss your flight. You definitely miss your flight. Yeah, they might put you on a no-fly list, and that's going you know. And then yeah. be, I don't know if that case has ever gone to the Supreme Court. Something similar to that. You're not being jailed. You're not being convicted of espionage. But you know, basically for being an idiot or an ass, <laughs> you know, your mm-hmm. your privilege of flying. You know, planes or whatever, some privilege like that is being restricted. Could you claim, hey, my rights are, that's infringing upon my free speech. I, I want to be able to fly planes and shout, oh boy. this is a hijack whenever I want to, or there's a bomb on this plane, even though I know it's not just because I like causing panic wherever I go. I mean, that's a, you know, that's <laughs> oh a thing. But that's the <laughs> line. That is so my, the line because legally, oh should gosh. you be protected? I mean, that's yeah. really what it comes down to. The Supreme Court like, says, yes, it's protected, but I mean, there's obviously practical issues there where I think. Think that the air, the airline would say, okay, that's fine. We're you know we're not going to jail you for ex- for exercising your free speech, but you're, we're not going to sell you tickets onto our airline anymore because yeah, that's being disruptive that- to our other passengers who have a right to you know take a flight without some jerk standing up and yelling bomb, you know. But I do think that you're kind of giving Homeland Security more credit. I, I would not be surprised if you were fully detained against your rights and against your your will for multiple yeah. hours for doing something like that. And and you would actually have a legal argument on your hands. But, but being detained for probable cause, you can get away with that. But you have a certain That's window. True. At some yeah. point, then it's like oh, you got to charge me, you. yeah, or release me. But you have, then it's unlawful imprisonment. Yeah, but but yeah, how long? It's long enough. Long enough for you to miss your plane for sure. I mean, I think they can get away with <laughs> holding you for that. Period long of time. enough to get a finger up the butt. Yeah, <laughs> Ooh, baby. Okay. Yeah. You have to pay for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's free. You just got to say bomb. <laughs> it's a bomb. <laughs> One other legal wrink- wrinkle since you bring up the issue of like a bomb in an airport. Shouting bomb in, in an airport could be construed as making a false report of a bomb threat to the authorities. And people have been arrested and potentially jailed for that. You can't make a false report to police. That's not protected speech. And so then you run, you run into that area. So it does get legally complicated but the i think the the bottom line remains that yes you know free speech is highly protected and the law errs on the side of of freedom of speech but there are lines both morally and legally it's time for science or fiction Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Jay was a sole winner last week. Feeling good, Jay? Uh, I'm not going to comment on that. Okay. Because if, if I get cocky in front of Bob, he'll get upset, and then if I <laughs> lose, then I look like an idiot. <laughs> no All win right. situation. A Kobayashi Maru. All right, here we go. Three regular news <laughs> items. You ready? Item number one, astronomers report that they have found galaxies so bright 
at over 100 trillion solar luminosities, there is no current classification for them. Item number two, scientists have produced a genetically modified maggot that secretes a protein that promotes wound healing. And item number three, a new study finds that treating toxoplasmosis infection significantly reduces the symptoms of anxiety in 40% of patients. Jay, you go first this week. All right, so this first one about the, the astronomers found galaxies that are so unbelievably bright that you know, there are 100 trillion solar luminosities um, that they, they don't have a classification for them. So, of course, I don't know what 100 trillion luminosities, solar luminosities is. Um, and Basically, I, and, 100 know, trillion suns. Yeah, sun, but... Sun-like stars. And now you I, know. <laughs> is it our sun? Is it, you know, there's, yes. there's suns that are yes, much bigger. Yes, it's our sun. It solar okay. sun. Yeah. yeah, the United States' is sun. 100 trillion <laughs> solar luminosities. So they could be twice as big as the sun, but then there'd only be 50 trillion of them. All right. That's interesting. All right. I'm going to put that one on my maybe list. Uh, the second one about you know scientists that produced the genetically modified maggot, and it secretes this protein that will create uh, – that will heal a wound. Very cool. Um, I really like that. And I'm going to say that I think that one is science. And this last one, a new study finds that treating uh, toxoplasmosis – an infection of toxoplasmosis will significantly reduce the symptoms of anxiety in 40% of patients. Oh, my God. Really? That's weird. Why would it do that? What What is it? They treat toxoplasmosis. I mean, is that having any effect on your, your serotonin reuptake? Interesting. God, that is a weird news item. I just don't know, Kara. Um, this one about the 100 trillion solar... Luminosities is bothering me because oh, that's a lot of suns. That's a lot of suns. Yeah, it's either that one or this last one. I'm going to say that the 100 trillion solar luminosities is the fake. Okay, Evan. That's bright. 100 trillion solar luminosities. That is very bright. But we are talking about galaxies here, not individual stars. So galaxies get pretty big, and so when you put it sort of in that context, it may not be sort of as enormous as it sounds. Not that it's not enormous, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Um, as far as a genetically modified maggot secreting a protein that promotes wound healing, I think of the three, this is the most plausible. Maggots and wound healing, uh, that's... That's, uh, that's science. And sure, why not, why not genetically modify it to secrete the, uh, their healing powers? I don't see any problem with that one whatsoever. Which leaves for me the treating toxoplasmosis infection, uh, reducing, reduces the symptoms of anxiety in 40%. I think it would increase, <laughs> uh, anxiety in, in people. Um, I, I can't put my finger as to why this one's the fiction. Uh, I just feel good about the other two. So I'm left with the toxoplasmosis as fiction. Alrighty, Kara. Galaxy so bright at over 100 trillion solar luminosities, there's no current classification for them. I have literally no opinion about this one. This is one of those pure examples of where my evolutionary standards are, where I, we talked about this last week and we got all sorts of emails in, uh, where I'm like anything below, like, I don't know, negative 10 degrees just is really cold and I have no concept of it. Um, I feel like this is the same way. I'm like, yeah, it sounds bright, but like, I don't know. Every time Bob is like, can you believe that this many solar masses or that many? I'm like, I don't know. It all just sounds big to me. <laughs> so I think that this one could be science because it's bright. Why not? We have better detection now. 
So maybe we found stuff that I almost said the other word. Maybe we found stuff that we hadn't found before. Um, a genetically modified mag maggot that secretes a protein that promotes wound heal healing. I'm like, why didn't we come up with this sooner? That sounds like total science. We've used maggots for a long time to help with like gangrene infection. It definitely makes sense that we would improve them to be better at their job. Um, toxoplasmosis. In fact, okay. So treating the toxoplasmosis infection significantly reduces the symptoms of anxiety. This seems reasonable too. I mean, it's like crazy old cat lady disease, right? You have a bunch of cats, you get toxoplasmosis from their poo. Um, toxoplasmosis is known in certain animals to make them want to go back to the source of infection uh, so that it can perpetuate its life cycle. Maybe it makes you anxious. But I, I, I guess the thing that's kicking me on this one is treating toxoplasmosis infection significantly re reduces the symptoms of anxiety in 40% of patients. Is that in 40% of toxoplasmosis patients or 40% of anxiety patients? Like, let's just assume maybe they all had toxo and treat it, and that, then maybe their anxiety gets better. That's my assumption based on what he yeah, says. Yeah, if that's the case, then I think this one is the fiction. So I'm going to go with that. Toxoplasmosis, reducing anxiety in 40% of overall anxiety patients. That sounds like the fiction. Okay, Bob. You guys are so cute. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. So are you. Uh, you know, 100 trillion solar luminosities, that just, what the hell? Um, uh, you know, quasars, that they are like the standard by which you say, yes, these are the brightest, farthest away things. Nothing's brighter than a, than a quasar. But so that's why this I'm having a, a real hard time with this one. A hundred trillion is is huge. So you know, and, and yeah, Kara, you can't really imagine a hundred trillion. So it's all about you know comparisons. You know, I, you know, if you happen to know the amount of stars in a typical galaxy and how many more stars this one would have, it's just like it's way too many. That's one way to look at it. So yeah, I'm having a big, I'm having trouble with this, but ah, uh, there might be something here that's. I mean, maybe it's. And frequent, maybe it's in a weird frequency of light. Maybe it's all older stars. I don't know. Red stars, older stars. I don't know. Something about that one that could go the other way, although I'm very skeptical of that one. The modified maggot, um, yeah, I could, t I could totally see that. I mean, perhaps they haven't really produced it yet and they're planning on it. I'm not sure if you would make that little tweak. Um, but you know, couldn't they modify butterflies? They got to modify maggots. I mean, that's nasty. But, uh, but I guess whatever. That would be, I would, I would use them. The toxoplasmosis one, yeah, this one isn't rubbing me the right way. Um, first off, um, I mean, I think something like 30% of the people have to toxoplasmosis infection, and it's generally benign, uh, although I think there's been some links to um, to uh, aggression and stuff, but not not necessarily anxiety. I'm not, I'm, I've never heard of any connection with anxiety. And also, how are you actually treating this toxoplasmosis infection? I've never heard of any treatment, any way to deal with that. And if we actually did have a treatment for it and so many people were infected, why not just use it on them? Although you could always counter that it doesn't really harm people generally. Um, so, yeah, there's something something tricky about this, this one. So I'm going to say toxoplasmosis is fiction. Okay. Oh, and it's hard to do oh. that, though, with this 100 trillion thing. It's hard. <laughs> so you all have no problem with the maggots. Uh, scientists have produced a genetically modified maggot that secretes a protein that promotes wound healing. You all think that one is science, and that one is science. Maggots. Yeah, yeah baby. Maggots. Maggot me. Yeah, so maggots aren't really 
a species, right? They're just the, uh, yeah. the larval form of, of certain insects. So this is the maggot form of the green bottle fly, Lucilia sericata. Um, and they engineered it to secrete human growth factor molecules, specifically PDGFBB. Now, you guys are right in that maggots are sometimes used to uh, help with wound healing in that they – like with gangrene necrotic or – Necrotic tissue. They eat necrotic, yeah, necrotic yeah. tissue, right? Yeah, they'll lead up to the necrotic tissue. Uh, they will also – uh, they do so. Oh, yeah. They so they do eat up necrotic tissue. They also secrete essentially antibiotics, right? Molecules that will inhibit infection. However, studies have not shown that they increase the rate of wound healing. So wounds still take the same amount of time to heal, whether or not you treat them with the maggots. So it's, you know, it's still, you, you, you get are they more of- likely to heal? No, I, I don't think so. I think that's the problem. The, the healing itself oh. is not enhanced. Just you're just getting rid of the dead tissue. That, and- that, that's a nice to have. You get rid of the necrotic tissue. You you have a little antibiotic effect. Hey, that's a good. That's a yeah, that's a good it's bonus. Nice. It's, it's nice. Pretty but- gross though. You do have maggots in your wound. Yeah, yeah but, but but pre pre <laughs> pre penicillin, I'll take maggots, baby. I'll eat them. Yeah, but people do it now. Oh. I'm thinking of my pro and they're, they're crazy. They're crazy. <laughs> like helps you my just don't look. I do have maggots between my toes. Yeah. <laughs> but so they, these new genetically modified maggots will also secrete the hormone that will that has been shown to increase cellular division and cellular reproduction. So it still needs to be treat to tested clinically to show that it will actually improve wound healing. Uh, that these maggots will. It's, so again, I worded it very carefully. They secreted a protein which has been shown to improve wound healing. Ah, we, yeah. Now we need to prove that the maggots secreting the protein right. will, mm-hmm. in a wound, you know, will that enough of it will be secreted and will get where it needs to go, et cetera, that it will uh, improve wound healing. But it's plausible. It's it's very plausible. Yeah. Well, here's a worst it, case scenario: it heals your wound, and the maggot is still on. Now it's under your skin. No, they, ah. the maggots know what they're doing. <laughs> Sounds like a Faustian, it's a Faustian bargain. They turn it to flies, first of all. Yes. Eventually, they're not going to stay as maggots. It is interesting, though, that it, it seems like, and I could be wrong, science discovered or medicine discovered this because it happens naturally. I have mm-hmm. a friend who's a, who's a doctor. She just finished medical school a couple of years ago and, you know, she works in the ER. Like she's doing a lot of internal medicine. And I was like, what's the grossest thing you've ever seen? And she's like, I legit saw a wound that was like covered in maggots. And this does oh. happen where like your body. Natural maggots too. Exactly. Sure. Where you have a wound yeah. that actually attracts them, but that must be some sort of symbiosis there. Like it actually is helping as disgusting as it is because it's kind of a last ditch. Oh my I gosh. did see that one time myself. I was working in the emergency Ooh. room. Oh, no. a, a homeless gentleman who had a leg wound. Oh. And, mm. you know, those are always interesting mm. admissions, somebody who is homeless, <laughs> because obviously they don't have a lot of access to right. you know, hygiene. Yeah. You know, I, I remember one time asking a patient to take off his shoes, and he's like, Doc, I haven't taken off my shoes in a week. Like, just, oh just warning you. Thanks <laughs> oh, for no. the warning. And in the, Thanks. Let me get the uh, assistant yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> I did I did have a patient who had maggots in the leg wound, you know, and it was definitely a hygiene issue. And was it like a diabetic, one of those? I don't, uh, I don't remember. The, yeah, that's the only detail I remember is maggots. Did you have a repulsion? <laughs> Were you, how, did, how did you feel? You just have to clean it up, you know. You just have to go like, that's um, that's interesting. I'm just going to, we'll just. It's uh, called yeah, the maggot maggotification. 
Uh, I'm going to barf. (laughs) All right, let's go to item number one. Astronomers astronomers report that they have found galaxies so bright at over 100 trillion solar luminosities, there is no current classification for them. So, yeah, it's interesting, Kara, that you don't have any intuitive sense of whether Mm -hmm. or not 100 trillion is a lot for a galaxy, right? It's it's obviously a huge number, but galaxies are – you know, they're huge things and the numbers are huge. Yeah, there's a reason we call these numbers astronomically yeah, large. Astronomical. <laughs> yeah. But that that's what made me say this one's the fiction. Yeah. Well mm-hmm. this one it's, Jay, uh-huh. is science. Yay! Science. All I got to say is yay and explain your ass because 100 trillion is crazy. So, wait, yeah. Kara, real, Kara, real quick, what if you said there's an infinite number of stars? That would that would be a red flag. That you, might right? trigger. Yeah. yeah. Red so, flag. so it's all, all about where, where that there. line is. Where that what line if I is. I said yeah. there's a kajillion. All right. <laughs> Ooh, <I> so, <laughs> Bob, what do you call a galaxy that is one trillion solar luminosities? What do you call it? Yeah, in terms of its how bright it is. Oh, uh, uh, terrasolar? <laughs> I don't it's, know. It's ultra luminous. Ultra luminous. Oh, oh cool. Interesting. If it Age has, Ultron. if it's ten trillion, it's hyperluminous. Mm. Oh, awesome. I wanted it to be uber luminous. Yes, Kara, that's <laughs> what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and so they don't have a word for a hundred trillion. They just, we just came up with hyper. One. Yeah, uber. They got to go uber. 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 Well, that's got to have the umlauts. The astronomers have, you know, casually informally come up with a name that they're using, but it hasn't been formalized yet. Outrageously luminous. No, they're calling it outrageously luminous. No. Outrageously, outrageously, no. it's got to be uber luminous. <laughs> yeah, uber luminous. I don't, so, I don't mind it, but they could have done better. But still, explain yourself. Yeah, so they, this is new. This is they didn't know that there were any galaxies this big out there. These are about mm. uh, nine, ten billion years old. So they were. Formed a few billion years after the galaxy, after the universe formed, and so of course it means that they're that far away as well, nine, ten billion years light years away. Um, so there's two reasons why they're so bright. The first is that they have lots of stars, which is not you know, that's the obvious <laughs> thing. But Bob, the second reason is that they also happen to be ha- the uh, be getting brighter because of gravitational lensing. So it's really bright galaxies that are also being lensed, which makes them even brighter. And that's rare. It's rare for a galaxy to be lensed like that. So it's a combination of these two things, which is why these are rare. This is they said it's like finding the eye in the needle in a haystack. Uh, But still, though, Steve, is the question: If they are so damn bright, why haven't they been detected before now? That's my main problem. But they're so far away. They're so far away. So they so are quasars. Yeah, but I don't know. I guess because they're a lot rarer than quasars. There's just not that many of these things out there. But there was more than one. It wasn't one galaxy. There was like eight that they discovered. And these galaxies, these young galaxies, they have a lot of very dense gas in the galaxies, which is leading to an extremely high rate of uh, star formation. So Mm. do you know, on average, on average, how many solar masses of new stars is being formed in the Milky Way galaxy? At at what rate? 
it's not much. It's like a, like seven or eight pops into my mind. It's re- it's really it's smaller it's, than you would think. It's about one solar mass of star per year. Okay, solar wow, that's mass it. Per year. These galaxies are making a solar mass every few hours. Wow, mm. they're massive, uh-huh. massive star formation, which is why part of the reason again why they're so bright. Um, that's a tremendous yeah. amount of gas. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Jay, you love them. <laughs> so I got it wrong, huh, Steve? Yes, Jay. Sorry. Soul winner last week, got it wrong this week. You're never going to give us your secret as to how you find articles that consistently none of us have read. I'm never going to give you my secret. It's no. so crazy. Kara, like, he, I he's read fi- s- he's so much He's doing late breaking. He's doing science or fiction within a couple hours before the show. Yeah, that's probably it. And of course, I'm usually yeah. prepping on Mondays for all of no, my news articles for Jay, the week. it's not that. It's not that because I I often look right before the show. He's he I think he's looking. I think he, either he's looking in some weird websites that are in the dark web or the deep web, or <laughs> or or he's look. I think he might be looking. He might be prepping this like uh, like on a on Tuesday, like a day or two or a day and a half before. So they're not mm. in the current in the current. Uh, Re- you know, release of news items. Latest. I don't know. Yeah, we can speculate all yes. we want. Interesting. Okay, let's go on <laughs> to number three. A new study finds that treating toxoplasmosis infection significantly reduces the symptoms of anxiety in forty percent of patients. That one, of course, is the fiction. Anyone see the actual study? I know. Nope. Did. Before yeah. you tell us, will you, will you explain if you meant forty percent of toxo patients or forty percent of anxiety patients, or did you toxo. leave it? Intentionally it's, vague. It's vague. It doesn't matter because it's the fiction. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what the study found was that people with rage disorder are twice as rage likely disorder. to have toxoplasmosis as people who as healthy controls. What, this, what is rage disorder? Yeah, it's like, I have rage disorder. I'm like, mad right now. They're, they're, they're so furious. We have impulsive outbursts of anger. They're luxes. Oh, I thought it was people who try to rage and they can't. Like, you oh. rage. <laughs> For you Farscape fans, they're Luxons. It's a recognized psychiatric disorder. Thank you. Oh. So the study looked at three they, – they divided people into three groups, people who had impulsive anger and rage, people who had other psychiatric illness but not anger or rage, and then healthy controls. Um, and what they found was that the group with the rage disorder, 22% of them had uh, toxoplasmosis infection. Of the people who had other psychiatric illness, 16% did. And of the healthy controls, only 9% did. So it was yeah, two, uh, 2.4 times the rate of uh, people with rage disorder versus healthy controls. They did the, it was a good control to do the people with other psychiatric illness. And often studies will do that. Well, they'll use, they'll have two control groups, healthy controls and people with similar illness, but not the one they're interested in because they want to control for variables that that relate to being sick or having a certain kind, like having a psychiatric illness, but not the one specific one that they're looking at. That's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, it's still correlational, and the authors are clear to say this doesn't tell us that toxoplasmosis causes these disorders. It just is a correlational study. Obviously, it's suggestive. It, you know, the the reason for this, and it gets interesting that the rate was higher in psychiatric patients because they said it could be that psychiatric illness or certain kinds of illness uh, or disorders may predispose to behavior that causes the infection rather than the other way around, right? Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that because when you're mad, you just want to eat cat poop. 
Yeah, or you know, whatever. Just maybe <laughs> people who have mental disorder are more likely to own cats. Who knows? You know, just they're maybe they don't have as good hygiene, oh. which we know is a, is a, is the case. So, if you've ever had a cat, is it just kind of safe to assume that you have toxo? No, no, no. If you have indoor okay. cats that you know would never. Uh, indoor cats are safer than outdoor cats because they're less. Gotcha. And cats that don't play with a lot of other cats, you know. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, I have two cats. They their entire universe is my house, right? And that they, they've never <laughs> been outside. They never encounter other cats. So hopefully they're not infected. So who won that one, Bob and Kara? Yay! And Evan. High five, Kara. Oh, right, good job, guys. And high five, Evan. I, I won too. Did and you? Yay, Thank you. Oh, good. Yes, I did. So, what just, the so hell? Jay was Thank the sole you. winner last <laughs> week. Sole loser this week. How fortunes change so quickly. Loser. Hey, Jay, what did you, you learn from this soul. experience? You are the soul man. What did I learn that from this past week? I hope mm-hmm. what you learned is you can totally talk shit at the beginning of science or fiction. It has no outcome. Yeah, You're right. Sure. I will next time. <laughs> you restrained yourself for yeah, no reason. Yeah. Although you would, well, <laughs> however, I think your real point was that you would be eating that much more crow right now if you had. Oh, that's true. If you had. Oh, uh, oh absolutely. No question. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Evan, give us a quote. Yep. A very wise man once said, just because science doesn't know everything doesn't mean you can fill the gaps with whatever fairy tale most appeals to you. Words of wisdom from the great Dara O'Brien. Irish comedian, television presenter at the United Kingdom in Ireland, noted for hosting many, many panel shows, Mock the Week, The Panel, The Apprentice, You're Fired, and also, of course, Dara O'Brien's Science Club, British science television series. So, well said. Basically, it's the god of the gaps. Or argument from ignorance, yeah. Or argument from ignorance as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says a lot of uh, skeptical things. Yes, he does. He does. People should watch him, learn from him. He also said that uh, about herbs, he said, you know, doctors studied herbs and the ones that worked are medicine and the mm-hmm. ones that don't work are just a potpourri. Something, there you go. Something to that effect. <laughs> there you go. Exactly right. Yeah. So he's dishing out the funny and the science at the same time. <laughs> right. Good combination. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Shoot thank that, you, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, doctor. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.